as well for this new name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Greetings in Christ's name. I've entitled the message this morning, The Fire of Inspiration. And Brent, you actually uh, did a good job of and I laid the groundwork for that message. You talked about the Word of God and the necessity of being in contact with the Word of God and reading it and doing so regularly, and I appreciate that. I'd like to begin with a scripture uh, this morning from uh, Luke chapter 24. Maybe we can read verses 13 to 35. A little bit of a lengthy uh, passage, uh, but it really sets the stage well, I think, for a discussion on inspiration. Starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 24, uh, we'll read about two men following the death and resurrection of Christ. It says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. We'll stop here for just a moment. Notice he gives us a distance. Now, in reading the Word of God, one of the things that we encounter sometimes is detail. Levels of detail that we may wonder, why is that in the Scriptures? And we, we may wonder, why did God inspire someone to unfold the Scripture in this way? But we always see that there's a reason. God has a reason for unfolding the Scriptures as He does. And these, this distance, when, when we're studying, sometimes we have to stop and say, well, what does this mean? What are three score furlongs? Today, when we talk together, we don't say, if somebody stops and asks for directions, we say, well, you go up this way about three score furlongs and then you turn left. Uh, that's not our language. So we may say, well, what does that mean? Well, we can interpret this in a couple of different ways. One of them is by looking at what a furlong was at the time the King James Bible was translated turns out that a furlong was the length of a, uh, it, it was the average length of, a, uh, of, of the distance that a man walked with a plow and cut a furrow before turning around. I don't know how they established that distance. Eventually it became an official distance of an eighth of a mile. So we have 60 eighth of a miles here because three score is three times the score, which is three times 20. Another way to, to, to determine that distance is to go back to the original Greek and say, well, what did it say in the original Greek uh, as it was recorded? And there, the word, the phrase that was used was hexekanta for the first word and stadia for the second word. Well, hexekanta is a word that means threescore. You might recognize the, the hex in there to start with, which means six. And a stadia, a stadion, was a distance that was used in the Greek Olympics. It was about 600 feet. So six or 60 times 600, which is 36,000. So you had 36,000 feet, and when you divide that by 5,280, you get about 6.8 miles. If you take 60 and divide by eight, you get a little over seven miles. So there's the King James got it close, but not quite what it said in the original Greek. So he's telling us that they traveled about seven miles. Why is that important? Well, we'll notice later why it's important. 
And they talked together all of the, on all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast thou not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, all, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it, even so, as the women had said, but him, that, him they saw not. So they have that they're, they're recounting to, to this man who came and joined them all the things that had happened. And it's an astonishing story, a story of a man who was crucified and perhaps rose again. Then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew near into the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. So suppose you had been Cleopas and his friend, and all this had happened to you. Would this be exciting? I mean, this was final proof that Jesus rose again. And we sat down and we communed with him. We didn't realize who he was. We traveled seven miles with him on foot. And we didn't realize who he was. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with him saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told him what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of the bread. So it's interesting. Why is, why is the distance important? Well, notice they had finished their day of travel. They sat down to eat, and they were going to go to bed. And instead, they turned around and traveled seven miles on foot all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how many times you've walked seven miles. I don't usually walk seven miles, but that's a long walk. And it was, they were used to walking, but it was a pretty good distance for them as well, especially at the very end of the day and ready to go to bed. Why did this happen? Because they were inspired, right? Their hearts were on fire. They had seen something that they couldn't wait to tell their friends. And I wonder if they ran all the way back. I don't know. They, you know, it, I, I'm not sure, but something you could you could have, if, if you had met these men on the way, you could have said you could have seen that something was inside of them burning like a fire and compelling them to go back and tell their friends. That's inspiration. That is how God inspires. You know, we have emotionalism, as we sometimes call it, where we yay rah rah we cheer people and we get them to 
on an emotional high and it helps a little bit, but it's not the same thing as the inspiration that comes from God. Amen. <clears throat> it's a little different. Emotions can be stirred by artificial means, sometimes or somewhat independently of intellectual participation. In other words, your, your mind doesn't really think so much about the information and the facts. It just gets excited because of something it's seen. You know, when you, when you see these leftist mobs in the streets today, what do they do? They chant, right? Chant over and over again. Why is that true? Because it is empty intellectually. You see, these, I, I see these guys debate with people like Charlie Kirk from Turning Point, and I love seeing him debate with them because their arguments are extremely empty, and it, it's like a short string. It doesn't take long to run off the end, and then you're just sort of hanging there like, I don't know where to go from here. That's emotionalism. Rah, rah, yay, lots of excitement. Get somebody stirred up, but there's no basis behind the emotion. What are the characteristics of inspiration? Well, first of all, inspiration does stir our emotions. We're emotional beings, and do you think Cleopas and his friend were emotionally stirred? Of course they were. They were excited. I mean, they were probably just jittery they were so excited. It was better than drinking a cup of coffee, right? And they were ready to head back as fast as they could and tell their friends. Inspiration does stir our emotions. We see this in Luke 19, verses 37 and 38. It says, when he was come nigh unto them, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This, of course, was when Jesus came on, on, on the back of a, of a donkey, on the, on, the, on the back of a little colt. And they were excited. Why were they excited? Because they had seen the truth of God. They had seen Jesus live this out, teach it, and illustrate it. And as a result, they were inspired. And that inspi inspiration brought emotion. Inspiration also draws our hearts to God. In Psalm 108, verse 1, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Exciting and drawing us close to God. When we see the inspiration of the Word of God, as, as Brent talked about, we are drawn to God. That's one of the primary reasons for reading the Scriptures. It's to inform us, but it's more than that. It's also to draw us close to our Maker. Inspiration strengthens our resolve to follow God. Inspiration strengthens our resolve to follow God. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 38 or 39 and 40, it says, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is, or, I'm sorry, yes, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Anybody remember where this was? This was on Mount Carmel, right? After God had demonstrated His tremendous power and had shown that He was God. And then it says, And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now, why did they do this? Because they were on fire. They were inspired because they had seen the power of God. Inspiration energizes us for service. You know, sometimes God asks us to do something, and you're just like, oh, God, that's just too much. I don't feel like doing that right now. Come on, God, maybe another time. But inspiration, God's inspiration, energizes us for service. 
What brings inspiration? Well, I think one thing is a renewed realization of the greatness of God. When we realize how great our Creator and our Master and our Lord is, it inspires us. How many of you have heard of Dr. David Menton? You ever heard that name? Dr. David Menton was a man with a PhD in biology from Brown University. He served as an award-winning professor at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis for 34 years. During his professional life, Dr. Menton was a consulting editor in histology for Stedman's Medical Dictionary, a standard medical reference work. He was also involved with creation ministry during this time. And so he worked for 34 years at the uh, Washington University School of Medicine. And at the end of that 34 years, he retired. But he didn't really retire. He just moved into a different phase of work. He went to work for Answers in Genesis as a speaker, writer, and researcher. And Dr. Menton passed away in 2021 but he worked for them for 20 years. And during that time he wrote, or he, he created a work uh, that was called I'm Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And you see the, that's displayed at the Creation Museum, but you can also pick up uh, at least snippets of it on YouTube. And we have the full movie at home. And he talks about the tremendous, um, miraculous work of creation whenever a baby is born. He talked about, uh, first of all, uh, when a baby is uh, conceived, he talked about the conception process, which is absolutely mind-blowing. It is extremely complex. It is not a simple act. It's something that's extremely complex. Things have to be timed just right. And then he talks about the development of the child in the womb and how that child is delivered and how that is just a miracle that it works. A woman's body has to, there, there are so many adaptations that God has given a woman so that she could bear a child that a man could not. It would be physically impossible for a man to do it. It would kill him. He couldn't do it. But women do it all the time because God made them in a way to do that. And that should inspire us because that means that you are a miracle of God's creation. And that's true of each one of us here. We should be inspired, and, and I, I encourage you, if you get a chance, uh, take a look at that work, I'm Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. If you look for that on YouTube under Dr. David Menton, you'll find at least excerpts from the movie, if not the entire thing. And it'll, it'll talk about the miracle of conception, development, and birth. And it's absolutely that. It's a miracle. So having a renewed realization of the greatness of God Knowing how he has placed us in this world, this miraculous world, this world of creation that he made, and then how he has renewed us and given us the new birth, which is perhaps even a greater miracle than the first birth. Secondly is the glorification of our Savior. When Jesus is glorified, we are inspired. <clears throat> Proverbs tells us, 29.18, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law happy is he. As we glorify Jesus and are given a vision of our future, we are inspired. 
<clears throat> along with that vision of future comes a sense of direction and purpose. Is that something you ever think about? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's God's purpose in placing me here? You know, Mark Twain was a gifted writer, but as far as I know, he was never Samuel Clemens. That was his real name. Mark Twain was his pen name. As far as I know, he never became a Christian. And this is what he said about life. He said, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantage over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth has ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Wow. That philosophy will never inspire you, will it? will it? William Shakespeare said that life is as a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's a very different vision than God gives us, isn't it? God says, no, that's not true. Your life has a purpose. You were created for a purpose. I went, I, I, I went through the miracle of conception and birth for you. I knew you when you were still in the womb because I have a purpose for you. That's inspiring. A sense of belonging. When we feel like we're making a difference and when we know someone cares. Those are things that inspire us. And that's why it's really important, I think, for us in the church and in our families to remind one another that you belong. You're part of God's family. And God wants you to make a difference. So what brings inspiration? Well, I think, first of all, the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Word of God. And thirdly, our fellow believers. And I'll talk about each of those in turn for a little bit. So who brings inspiration? The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and our fellow believers. Think about the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. That is an inspiration that we not only feel, but that fills us and compels us to seek and to do the will of God. In Acts chapter 1, we read about uh, the, the interesting opening to the book of Acts. Luke was almost certainly the author of Acts or of the book of Acts. He was also the author of the book of Luke. And he, in both cases, he opened in the same way. You'll notice that in Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1, he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. You have the word Theophilus. If you break that down, the word Theo in Greek means to, it means God. It's a name for God. And Philos means, or Philo means love. So Theophilus was someone who loved God. So basically saying a lover of God. So this may have been a generic name that he penned. It may not have been written to a specific person, but he maybe was saying, I'm writing these works for all those who love God so they can see how the church was formed in the beginning. And he goes on, I won't take time to read all of it, but he goes on and he starts to talk in chapter one 
about the way that the disciples had the Holy Spirit. How Jesus told them, the Spirit is going to come upon you and how the Spirit came upon him. And he says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now think about it, these disciples that were gathered in the upper room. Jesus had risen from the dead and he was taken away from them. He went back up to heaven and they were feeling a little discouraged, I think. But he said, go to Jerusalem, wait for me there and the Holy Spirit will come. And when it came, when the Holy Spirit came, he made all the difference in the world. That little group of 120 people went from being discouraged to being inspired. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The kinship of our spirit with God's spirit is a source of inspiration. Romans 8:16, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. <clears throat> Along with that, God's testimony through his spirit of the greatness of God and the glory of Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit did not come, he said, to bear witness of himself. He came to bear witness of Christ. He's the one who tells us about the greatness of Christ. We see that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. He told us that he's here to glorify Christ. He inspires us to follow. He tells us in John 16, verses 8 to 11, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged, calling us to follow by it because of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. An inspiration to follow and to serve. As we follow Jesus, we're also called to service. And then there's the inspiration of the Word of God. <clears throat> you know, when we, Brent talked about the fact that when we read the Word of God, we learn more about him and we're drawn to him. And I believe that is so true. There's, there's something about God's word that it takes discipline to read it regularly. We say, well, I read this a hundred times before. I know all this. I want to go look for something new and exciting. But when we are faithful in digging into God's word and reading it, there's always something new there. I think it's described in the book of Psalms as treasures new and old. They're hidden treasures. They're, they're, if, if you continue digging into God's Word, you will find that there are little things that pop out at you that you've read a hundred times and haven't noticed before. And I think that's the Spirit of God using us, using His Word to inspire us. <clears throat> It gives us a vision of God's purposes and our place in them and a firm foundation of, of truth on which to build our hopes and aspirations. You know, one of the things that we really experience today is increasingly persecution for standing for truth. We're finding this more and more true in the United States as well as other places. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I really encourage you, if you ever get a chance, to watch Ben Stein's movie, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. He talks about what happens to men and women who are willing to bring 
the idea of divine inspiration and divine creation into the world of science. They are often torn apart, their reputations are besmirched, and they're pulled down because they don't want to hear that truth. That's a truth that the world does not want to hear. Because if you believe that you are a created being, implicit in that belief is the idea that you are now accountable to your Creator. And so you don't want to hear that if you're a sinner. You don't want to hear the fact that you're created because that means I have to give account someday for the sins that I'm committing. And so you want to shut down those who say that we are created. And so going back to the Word of God and finding the inspiration that allows us to continue to present truth in spite of what the culture around us demands is really important. I think as Christians, especially in the end of time. Let's keep going back to God's Word. I really, I really believe that as we do that, we can more aptly inspire each other. Um, I think we've probably all been to services and places where the inspiration of the Holy Spirit seems to be, be lacking. And that's a, that's a difficult thing because you're there to worship but you're not inspired to worship because the worship is actually uh, more rote and formality than it is actual worship. And so going back to God's Word and knowing and understanding what God wants from us and, and allowing the Spirit of God to teach us through His Word is indeed extremely important as we seek inspiration. And then finally there's the inspiration of the brotherhood. Paul tells us that we are members one of another. We're all members of the same body. We are there to support one another. He talks, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 12, about how when one member hurts, everyone hurts with him. And that's part of inspiration and truth. That's inspiring in itself. Um, when one member rejoices, everyone rejoices with him. He talks about how important each member is. You know, we, we some, one of the things that Satan does with us as individuals is tries to convince us that we are of no value and no importance. He does that to every one of us, I believe. And probably if we're honest, each one of us at times has felt that. Like, I'm no good. Everything I try fails. I'm just a failure. I'm miserable. Why was I ever born? Never listen to that argument. That comes from the devil. He wants to convince you that you are of no value because if he can do that, you'll become completely discouraged and you'll give up. And so having that truth and sharing that truth one with another, that you are indeed valued by God, that's important. And as a result, because you, God places value and trust in you, you in turn should follow him and express your love for him by your obedience. I read of a man who worked, uh, I believe as an accountant, and there was some kind of discretion that happened or indiscretion that happened. I don't know what that indiscretion was, but he lost his job as an accountant. And he was working for the same company, but he was pushed into a different position where he had to go out and do manual work. And he, he had to work as a hod carrier. And I guess he carried mud for those people who were 
I'm not sure what they were doing. They were forming something with plaster or something. But it was a, it was a, a difficult job. It was one that was physically demanding, and it was so much different from the one he was used to. So he was suddenly plunged into a drastically different world. Instead of going to an office each day, he was hauling loads of concrete block up to the fifth level of a construction site. Gone was the piped-in music of the corridors. Now he had to endure blaring transistor radios. Any girl who walked by was subject to rude remarks and whistles. Profanity shot through the air, especially from the foreman, whose primary tactics were whining intimidation. This man would curse and swear for, God's sake, why can't you do anything right? I never worked with such a bunch of blankety-blanks in my life. That was kind of the language this man used. Near the end of the third week, this man felt he could take no more. I'll work till break time this morning, he told himself, and then that's it. I'm going home. He'd already been the butt of more than one joke when his lack of experience caused him to do something foolish. The stories were retold constantly thereafter. I just can't handle any more of this. A while later, he decided to finish out the morning and then leave at lunchtime. Shortly before noon, the foreman came around with paychecks. As he handed the man his envelope, he made his first civil comment to him in three weeks. Hey, there's a woman working in the front office who knows you, says she takes care of your kids sometimes. Who? He named the woman who sometimes helped at the nursery of the church where the man and his family worshiped. The foreman then went on with his rounds. When the hod carrier opened his envelope, he found, along with his check, <clears throat> a handwritten note from the payroll clerk. Here's what it said. When one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. He stared at the note, astonished at God's timing. He hadn't even known the woman worked for this company. Here, at his lowest hour, she had given him the courage to go on, to push another wheelbarrow or mortar up that ramp. So, it's important that we support each other. You really never know what those words of comfort might mean to another person. When you have someone in the church who's hurting, and you care enough, to give them words of encouragement, sometimes it means more than you'll ever know. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And there's, there's a, there, in, in that passage, there, the thought is given to draw one another close, to pull one another in, because we need each other. That's part of God's inspiration for our lives. That is words of encouragement one to another. Being mentors one to another. Being able to mentor each other and being able to accept that mentorship tells us in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. As we get older, we become physically less able and even mentally less able. I can tell that I have to struggle more with certain things than I once did. 
But God tells us we still have a place in the church. We still have a work to do. We're to help the younger. Our experience can be a blessing to them. They don't have to make the same mistakes we made because our experience is there to share with them. So that inspiration comes, again, from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God, and from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just want to close with thinking about eternal inspiration. As we uh, are taken from this world, as we pass to the next world, I want to think about the constant inspiration that by the grace of God will be ours. There's that renewed realization of the greatness of God. You know, we, we talked earlier in the message about some of the things that we see in the world, in the created world around us that inspire us because they show us the greatness of our God. But can you imagine in the new creation, seeing creation in a way we've never seen it before, seeing the awe-inspiring greatness of God? That's going to be something that we'll see like we've never seen before. Our Savior will be glorified in heaven even more so than He is down here on earth. We glorify Him as we gather and worship, but we also hear His name used as a curse word on the streets. In heaven, that won't happen. Everything will be centered around glorifying Jesus. Vision will be ours in heaven. We have a degree of vision on earth, but I believe our purpose and understanding of our being there will be greater in heaven than it ever was on earth. We will understand why God did what he did in the past and we'll understand that he will always provide for us into the future. And finally, sense of belonging, which is so much, so necessary for inspiration. Uh, we belong here, don't we? We belong to God. We belong to our families. We belong to one another as the church. But in heaven, We'll be in this massive throng of Christians who have lived down through the ages and we will sense our belonging like perhaps we never have before. That will be our reality in heaven. So I think we should take that and we should encourage one another. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. He's talking about the second coming of Christ and how we'll be raised up to meet him in the air. And he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And I think we should do that. We should comfort and stand with one another and help one another. Understand that, brothers, sisters, keep on going. It may be hard here, but this isn't the final analysis. This isn't the final place that we'll be. We're going on to a place where we will be inspired as we've never been on earth. So God bless you this week. May you be inspired and directed. Let's pray.